Welcome to Inside IR, a podcast series by Herbert Smith Freehills that explores the latest developments in the Australian industrial relations landscape. Hello and welcome to Inside IR, the Australian industrial relations podcast, the series that arms HR, IR and legal professionals with the latest in industrial relations thinking. My name's Rowan Doyle and I'm excited to have with us today my partner, friend and colleague, Wendy Favell. Welcome, Wendy. Hi, Rowan. Lovely to be back in Melbourne. Yes, well, Wendy, uh, you have a very much a national IR practice, but based in Brisbane these days. And I think it's fair to say, uh, do a lot of enterprise bargaining, but also probably one of the few practitioners in the country with a real specialty in uh, managing construction and infrastructure industrial relations. So really great to have you here today, Wendy. We're taking a little bit of a change of pace again from previous episodes where we've focused very much on IR reform. And we're going to be looking today on uh, the, the practical problems that employers are facing in getting enterprise agreements approved and with the approval process more generally. Now, it's interesting that we're still talking about this um, so much and that it occupies so much of our day because we're, what are we, 12 years into the Fair Work Act bargaining environment? And uh, so the content rules, the process rules, bar for the odd tweak along the way, are pretty settled. Uh, so you would have expected that we would have ironed out perhaps most of the bumps by now, but we haven't. And unfortunately, um, enterprise agreement approval processes and content requirements of agreements still occupy quite a lot of our time, Wendy, yeah. and certainly a lot of the time of the Fair Work Commission. So we'd be very interested in your thoughts on uh, this issue today, Wendy, and in particular, what do you think? I think you've got the top six issues to take us through that you've been seeing of late with enterprise agreement approval applications, Wendy. Yeah, and certainly these are these are six, but they're not by any means the complete complete list. You know, every agreement approval application I think we're dealing with is different, very tricky things that that often come up. I look. I think the first one is um, really don't assume that simply because clauses that were in an old agreement, you know, let's say you rolled over, where we might be up to the fourth round of your enterprise agreement since 2010. Don't assume that because it was approved three rounds ago that it's going to be approved again. Certainly in the time that the Fair Work Act has been in place, the legislation has really not changed that much, but there have been some key cases like the Coles case, the one key case that really have meant the Commission has completely overhauled their internal processes for how they deal with these. And the agreement assessments team within the Commission is uh, is a pretty big team now that really scrutinises agreements on a line-by-line -line basis. So I think really preparation is key and, and not assuming that things will get through. They're a very again. thorough team, that's for sure. Very thorough team. You know, there's not, not very often I, I get an email back um, from the agreements assessment team saying we have only one question this time. So I, I think that's the first one. And, and on that, I mean, it's not, not uncommon to be able to respond to the queries that you do get from the member assist team and clarify things and it not actually require any changes. I mean, it's not always the case that yeah. the issues that are raised by the Fair Work Commission require concessions, changes, undertakings. Sometimes clarification is all, all that it needs. Yeah, yeah. But the list, um, usually you need to work through those very carefully. Mm. Um, the second one, which is a key one, is award coverage. I think certainly um, since 2010, there have been a lot of employers that have that have relied on certain awards that have underpinned their enterprise agreements, and that's obviously important because the better off overall test is assessed against the relevant modern awards. I think the change has been certain decisions that were made by some employers in that space 
perhaps haven't been quite right. Um, so, um, decisions in which award they which deem award, to apply or yeah, compare the agreement against in yeah, conducting the boot. Yeah. And particular in particular industries where cases might have cropped up or there've been changes in the way the regulator has approached the coverage of that particular award. So, I mean, increasingly it rarely comes up um, unless the application is contested. But in some instances where the union, where a union thinks that a different award should apply, this is where they can start to unravel the application process and, and object on the basis that a different award applies. So I think increasingly employers are kind of just second guessing, have we got the right award here? Because it can end up holding up an agreement approval application and, and in some cases result in a full hearing if suddenly the award that we've thought had applied for the last 12 years suddenly doesn't apply and therefore the rates aren't high enough. Yeah, and depending on the work, the award could result in some pretty significant changes to the outcome of the better off overall test as well. And significant so. maybe mm. impact on the labour costings that mm. you've planned out for this particular agreement, particularly if it's an, an award that has you know higher rates. That's a good point. So that's two. What's number three? Number three is annual salaries. So many EAs will have annual salaries in them. Um, the, the trick with this is, is and some of the problems the Commission have with annual salaries is trying to set a bit of a limit on the number of hours. So for the Commission to do their job, obviously they've got to, they've got to make sure that that annual salary is high enough considering all of the award entitlements. But when you don't have an upper limit of hours for the year, how, how do you actually conduct that analysis? So I think You'd have to assume the worst, wouldn't you? That they work an almost unlimited amount of hours per week. Yeah, particularly mm. if you've set your roster clauses, for instance, Monday to Sunday, 24-7, there becomes a real problem with, with the annual salary assessment process. So something, again, probably don't want to put uh, an award annualised wage clause that has a whole lot of record-keeping obligations into the agreement. So thinking about that when you do have annual salaries, I think, is really important. And are you seeing on that particular issue, Wendy, are you seeing where there haven't been uh, appropriate limits set in the enterprise agreement for the amount of hours that might be worked in return for the annualised salary? Is that the kind of thing that might be able to be addressed by way of undertaking or, or is that too significant? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the more common one is to set limits around some of the assumptions that go into the calculation of the annual salaries by way of undertaking and, mm. and hopefully that gets through as not being a significant change to the agreement. Yeah. Um, that's probably more common rather than kind of reconciliation type clauses, mm. but, but certainly I think um, doing a bit of preparation on that is important because I think that's coming up more and more, particularly in the context of underpayment projects at the moment where a lot of those are focused on are the annual salaries actually enough with the hours that people are actually working. Great. Number four. Number four is, is one that hasn't really changed, but there's certain unions that do regularly watch out for approval applications. So they are publicly available. Um, a lot of unions will be tracking those applications to test non-union agreements and then seeking to intervene in those processes. So I, I don't think that's really changed, but just, I guess, something to keep in mind. Um, often the commission will be when those sorts of unions do apply to intervene, they will be willing to, to let them be heard on the issues. And obviously that can impact the approval process. 
I think there's a bit of a tendency in those circumstances where there are genuine issues that are identified that often employers will withdraw applications and then redo the bargaining processes, but it's, de it's a definite trend that, that we're seeing. Number five. The good old explanation process. So it's always a bit of a, um, a, bit of a punt as to how comprehensive you make these. I mean, some of the ones I've done, and some of the explanation documents have been 40 pages long, right? Um, but making sure that you're planning that out properly, the explanation process to employees, obviously that feeds into whether the agreement is genuinely agreed by employees and it, it's an easier area to, to attack if someone wants to oppose your application. So I think getting that right, planning that out from the start and, and making sure you have enough time is really important. And you mentioned one key at the start of this episode. I mean, it's really become a significant issue post the handing down of that decision. Do you yeah. want to perhaps mention that just briefly? Yeah, so I think um, certainly since one key, which was really a decision all about the extent to which you do have to explain the terms, I think from now or from that case, really what became evident is we need to not only explain the effect of the terms of the agreement, but we also need to look at increasingly how those terms have compared to the previous agreement, how those terms have compared to the modern award so that there's a bit of transparency in the process. So it's not simply enough to give a high level summary of what the deal is going to be this time round. Mm. Really going that extra step and explaining everything is, is really important. And yeah. that's, and now you actually do have to attach the explanation documents that you have used as part of the process for them to be scrutinised. Yeah. So that's a really important point. I mean, that's a big, big outcome of one key is not only do you need to do all these things, but you need to be able to prove that you have done them to the satisfaction of the commission, which yeah. I think people are getting a lot better at. But yeah. the extent to which you have to go, the lengths you have to go to to explain the differences will will um, be different depending on the bargaining dynamic and what instrument was in place before and the whole range of factors. But yeah. um, no, there's some really good tips, Wendy. Yeah. Number six. The last one was starting the access period early. So obviously before you're starting the access period, you've got to notify employees about the details of the vote. So when is it going to be? What time is it going to start and end? And, and how are we going to vote? Um, key part of that is you know, also making sure you're contemplating people being on leave, for instance. What we're seeing occasionally is people starting things early before the seven clear days before um, the end of the vote. So allowing people to um, vote earlier than that seven day period. Um, what the Commission in a few recent cases has said is the, access, the voting process actually starts from the time that people can actually vote. Mm. So if you're allowing people to, to vote early... Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? The voting process started, starts, mm. you're suddenly inconsistent with the details of the vote that you've given prior to the access period. So that's obviously a compliance issue. Um, now, normally, we have this wonderful thing now called the minor procedural and technical errors discretion. But the Commission can, in some circumstances, overlook that sort of error. Very grateful that's in there. The problem, though, has been in a few cases, um, the Commission has actually looked at that error of allowing people to um, start early and decided that it's actually not a minor error and that it does have a, an impact on employees, so therefore they didn't exercise their discretion and the agreement application fell over. So it's just, just planning out that process, I think, really is really important and, and not relying on that 
that discretion to get you through. Yep, agreed. Now, you, you did mention these are your top six at the moment, but there's a, probably a long list of others that we could spend all day talking about. Uh, there are lots of challenges in this space. Do you ha have a quick couple of tips that you can give to our listeners as to how you might avoid trouble in this space and, and get your enterprise agreement approved more easily? Yeah, I do. I, I think the first one has to be have your calculations ready. So the commission obviously does a bit of a line-by-line -line analysis. They'll look at particular cycles. They'll look at particular entitlements. They'll assume certain hours and they'll look at how does the award compare to the agreement and often they'll give you some of those calculations. Now, with agreement timeliness targets, the Commission's rushing through applications pretty quickly. Um, so it means that really you do have limited time when they send the material to you for comment and they send these the, the calculations to you to then go and respond. So, so the tip is do your better off overall calculations early, have them ready um, it will help you in, in answering those responses. For instance, you know, recently we've seen um, some, the Commission would have um, done their calculations over a week, let's say, Monday to Sunday, when in fact the agreement contemplated a four-week cycle. So mm. over the four-week cycle, we were completely fine, but over the one week, which, which actually wasn't what the agreement provided for, it was an issue. So we were able to identify that really clearly by having those calculations ready. Great. Uh, the next one is minor errors. So talked about them, the discretion that the Commission has. I think again, it is there. So if, for instance, um, the Notice of Employee Representational Rights has something attached to it and there's a bit of an error in it, um, or there's um, issues with the voting process, then you can apply for the Commission to exercise that discretion. It is there. It does regularly get used, particularly where that error is, is a mistake and it doesn't actually impact the outcome of the vote. Let's say the numbers would have still had a majority had one person not being given an opportunity to vote, for instance. But there have been occasions increasingly where the Commission has chosen not to exercise that discretion. So I guess the tip in this space is if you do stuff something up... Know that it's there, but... Know that it's there, but maybe <laughs> don't, don't rely on it. And I think, I mean, increasingly employers in that space, if the Commission gives you that um, indication that they're not going to exercise that discretion, what most employers will do at that point is withdraw rather than proceed on it and get an application it's, dismissed. It's a really good reform though, isn't it? Like it's been in place for I don't know how many years now, but quite some time. And yeah. it, it, uh, reflect back on, we, we've obviously written our um, guide on enterprise bargaining and uh, reflect back the approval chapter, how many minor problems resulted in agreements being overturned and having to be redone. I mean, just the administrative time involved in that and the cost yeah. for no real good reason. So no. I think this has been a really great reform. But as you said, uh, don't necessarily bank on it. It's there just in case. Um, we've of course still got the option of undertakings as well. Yeah. You want to touch on that? Yeah, I think it's very rare I see an agreement that doesn't have undertakings. I almost see that as a win and go out and treat myself to dinner if that's the case or the client. <laughs> um, because undertakings are pretty standard now. Although the recent stats were quite interesting from recently. It was 52% of EAs that were approved by undertakings, but then the rest actually got through without undertakings, which maybe is an indication that they're flexing things up a bit. But or that people are getting all people are their getting agreements better. up to scratch over time, you know, we're up yeah. to the bargaining around four or five under the uh, Fair Work regime. That might be part of it too. 
Yeah, I think so. I think the other thing you mentioned before was around the questions that the Commission asked. So I think actually looking at those questions or those queries and making sure that an undertaking is actually needed is really important. Yeah. Often the Commission will say, oh, this particular NES precedence clause isn't in the agreement, you should put that in via an undertaking where accidentally they've missed that it's in clause 4.4 mm. of the agreement. So just making sure that you are sense checking the queries that they've raised to make sure an undertaking is required because obviously if an undertaking is actually given and accepted, it becomes a term of the agreement. So for instance, if you've given an undertaking for a reconciliation once a year, you actually need to do it because otherwise you're breaching the agreement. So having a think about whether an undertaking is needed having a think about how you frame that undertaking in a way that's actually workable for you to implement is, is I think, really important. Yeah, no, they're really good tips. And, and I think just to finish off, and we were discussing before the podcast, the real importance of getting all this right, which, I mean, primarily is so that you don't have delay or administrative problems or, or just cost involved in, in the process. Getting it right the first time is obviously better. But there's also some from broader reasons as to why you want to get not just the content requirements, process requirements right, but just the clarity of your agreements uh, up to a certain standard. Did you want to perhaps talk us through that, Wendy? Yeah, the bane of my existence, payroll compliance. Look, I, I think increasingly I'm redrafting hours of work clauses, I'm mm. redrafting overtime triggers clauses. I think looking through your agreement with a clear head, not relying on past experience and really making sure, can we actually implement this? Is this something our payroll system can actually do? Are we being clear about when overtime is triggered? Is, is critical to you being able to actually implement the agreement and payroll being able to pay people correctly and you being able to implement the obligations that, that you've agreed to in the agreement. So I think it's, it's really essential to have another look at, look at agreements that particularly have had you know, four or five rollovers in many over yeah. many years. And I think if our listeners are to take anything away from this podcast, I mean, that would be, in my view, the most important tip. Now is the time, even independent of approval requirements, have a fresh look at your agreement and see what we can tighten up because clarity is, is so important and it might actually save you a big headache in three, four, five years' time yeah. uh, where you might otherwise unearth a bit of a problem. Uh, in how you've applied your agreement or in your payroll system. So that's a really good point, Wendy. Thanks. So look, we've really appreciated your insights, Wendy. Great to have you on Inside IR. And as always, we'd love to hear feedback from our listeners. Please feel free to comment, direct message, or send an email to insideir at hsf.com. Otherwise, thank you for listening, and we look forward to seeing you on our next podcast. In the spirit of reconciliation, Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and visit our website, herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.